Ayla Ellison, and you're listening to The Top Line, brought to you by Fierce Pharma and Fierce Biotech. Psilocybin and MDMA are each in late-stage development as treatments for depression and PTSD, respectively, a near-watershed moment for psychedelics and their turnaround in mainstream medicine. Scott Aronson, a clinician and psychiatrist at Shepherd Pratt in Maryland, has been working in the field for more than 30 years and knows what it's taken to get here. But what may be coming in the next few years may only be scratching the therapeutic surface. In a conversation with Fierce's Max Bayer, Aronson breaks down the hurdles facing developers as the studies progress. Here they are. Scott, I'm so happy that you were able to take the time to chat today and for us to dive into the broader application of psychedelics and the fact that in in the larger timeline of drug development, there's on the precipice of maybe potential FDA decisions in the next couple of years. I wanted to ask you maybe as a 10,000 foot level question to get us started and, and given your time in this field, what does it feel like that the pendulum swing of mainstream therapeutic use of psychedelics seems to be swinging towards maybe some near-term FDA approvals. I'm somebody who has spent my whole career, which is now in excess of 40 years, specializing in difficult-to-treat mood and anxiety disorders. And to be able to see something that, quite frankly, has been around for millennia that may change the course of illness for people who've had illnesses that we have not been able to adequately get our arms around is probably the most exciting thing that's happened in my career. When we started this call, you said the to, to be someone in your position right now and in others in the field is like drinking water out of a fire hose. Maybe that has something to do with the fact that while there are very promising ongoing pivotal studies, both for psilocybin and MDMA, the indications behind there could be even more promising in things like anorexia. Maybe talk about that interesting dynamic between the promise that exists for psilocybin, maybe specifically right now, but the promise that could be there five, seven years down the line as it is focused maybe less so on depression and more so on disorders, like things like anorexia, rather. When I'm given grand rounds these days, I, I really am talking about Crane's diagnostic notion of the use of psychedelics. How I would put my arms around it is I think that any psychiatric illness which causes a restriction in somebody's perspective, which narrows one's focus, and they become hyper-focused on internal issues and concerns, is a potential uh, target for psychedelics. And you can start to list off any illness in which you think somebody is hyper-focused internally and not focused enough on the outside world or on their relationships with people outside of themselves. So we have depression to start with, but you also have things like post-traumatic stress disorder, where somebody becomes quite overwhelmed by reliving past traumatic experiences in a way that doesn't permit them to live their life to the fullest. Mm -hmm. uh, you have obsessive compulsive disorder, where somebody is hyper-focused on obsessional or compulsive concerns and have to repeat behaviors or, or can't get their thoughts on a different topic other than the obsessional one, or any kind of addictive 
illness, be it addiction to substances or behavioral addictions, like something like anorexia. But I think it's probably adaptable across a lot of addictions to substances, be it alcohol, be it opiates, even be it other things. A dear friend of mine currently is looking at tobacco addiction and will allow us to treat cigarette addiction better. So the, the arena is huge. As well, some people have been looking at other things like the hyperfocus of people with cancer, uh, that they get tremendously concerned with their impending demise. And actually, the earliest studies that came out in 2016 were looking specifically at terminal cancer patients and using psilocybin to relieve that anxiety and depression that these folks were having on account of their medical illness. And almost a bit of a full circle with that, I would imagine, given the fact that, for example, someone like Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, was inspired by LSD as he was growing that movement, clearly stating the potential for psychedelic therapy to be an additive for people who are dealing with addiction. And now here we are, and it could be actually on the in, in the not-too-distant future, something that people are actually considering for true therapeutic benefit. There are a couple of studies, albeit not really well done and not really well run, but at least suggestive that use of psychedelics in an alcohol-addicted population. There were some studies, particularly out of British Columbia, in the late 60s, early 70s, before everything got shut down mm. uh, by the Controlled Substance Act in 1970. But these studies were very supportive of the ability to help alcoholics stop drinking. You make an interesting point there, maybe, and in, in that bridge between sort of that research before the Controlled Substance Act and, and what has really taken off in the last 10 to 15 years, which is a much more legitimized, structured clinical study format, if you will, or foundation that has lent itself to psychedelics being taken more seriously in the mainstream. I want to ask specifically because we've had the initial safety readout of one of Compass's trials testing psilocybin and in anorexia. How are these early studies informing mid-stage or pivotal clinical trials? And, and what's been learned from that more rudimentary time in, 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 in psychedelic research when, again, the, the trials weren't so well done to where they are now, where they have to be bulletproof, if you will, because, again, they're trying to convince regulators that it's time for these to be approved. Yeah, the, the early studies are all going to be very much focused on safety. We want to make sure that we're not making people worse, that we're not inducing people to get psychotic, that we're not inducing people to become suicidal. So there was a study which just published in Nature Medicine right. that was just reporting on the first early experience in an open-label study of a dozen women with anorexia. And the good news is, is that the safety profile was really quite good. And the other thing is that there was at least some suggestion that a lot of these women felt that there was some help in getting them out of the rut that, that their lives have been in because of anorexia. But many of them basically felt, gee, if I could be dosed again, maybe I could make some more yardage. And so that is that not maybe the fork in the road where psilocybin specifically finds itself? And if so, what is that next step, which is thinking about 
dose dependency or, or the lack thereof, how each subsequent dose of psilocybin can impact therapeutic benefit. How are how is someone like yourself, a, a, a direct researcher in this field, thinking about that next step? How can psilocybin be tested uh, a little bit better in a way so that clinicians have a better sense of what one dose of psilocybin does versus two versus even three, both on safety and, and also efficacy? We do have the phase three trial is enrolling, and that's a, a trial of uh, a like dose of a synthetic psilocybin versus placebo. And there is an ability beyond the randomization that uh, some six months after the randomization, there is an opportunity to do open-label dosing on these Mm. folks. The problem is that there's so many different pieces in this puzzle. So when you're looking at being able to do multiple doses, there are two reasons to be able to do multiple doses. One reason is, are some people just not getting enough benefit out of a single psychedelic dose? And then secondly, is if you have somebody who has responded to a single dose, what's the durability of response and how often would you need to redose them? And it's going to wind up being pretty individual. Mm. Uh, I, I have uh, certainly had the experience of some people that I dosed who've continued to do well for uh, a good long period of time. And that's also my, my buddies over at uh, Hopkins from their depression study have followed some of these folks for one and two years after a single dose, and they have been able to report that many of these folks continue to do well. We are as well for some of my investigator-initiated studies that I've done. So I've done a study looking at people with really treatment-resistant depression. Mm. So these are folks who have failed at least five different treatments in the current episode. We dose 12 people, and we'll be reporting out on those results later this year. I also did a bipolar type 2 study, teen folks that we dosed. That article has already been submitted, is under review. But that's going to give us some clues. And what we're going to wind up seeing is whether there's any evidence of making any of these people any worse. How are you thinking about the legitimate commercial viability of this in the sense of number of clinicians who can administer a psychedelic therapy, whether or not that is different based off of, say, for right now, MDMA and psilocybin? Would there be a particular specialty of administering one versus the other? how you think about a specialty, specialization within psychiatry, where you're thinking about, well, how does someone who specializes in PTSD, could they also administer a psychedelic for suicidal ideation or bipolar disorder? How are you thinking about all of that in terms of the the potential commercial landscape, how many people there are to administer it, and how much uptake there could ultimately be? So many problems with it, because one of the problems with the field, as I'm sure you have noticed, is everybody's an expert and everybody wants to get a piece of this puzzle and everybody wants to own something. They want to make something proprietary. And then, of course, there's also people who just want everything to be available to everyone. And the example I like to cite is that if you want to know how these drugs work, when they're just indiscriminately administered, there's a reason why people who go to raves don't leave raves psychiatrically more healthy than they went in. And it's because you really have to have this done in a thoughtful, controlled environment to see whether there's any benefit from it. Mm. I think that there's a lot of people weighing in on what should the training be for somebody to administer psychedelic. My take 
you certainly want people who are reasonably well-educated. You want people who have an expertise on the illness. And sure enough, when I started doing the phase two study of anorexia, I am not a an expert in eating disorders, but gosh darn, I know a lot of people who are. Mm. And so I have a number of people, including one of my therapists, is somebody who is all specialized in in eating disorders. And she's one of my lead therapists, has taught other people, and we've trained many of our folks to become expert in eating disorders. Because it's a, it really is a different kettle of fish, the same way that treatment-resistant depression is a different uh, group of folks than people with just garden-variety depression. So I do worry about what this process is that's going on in which states are looking at decriminalizing psychedelics without any kind of regulatory component, because I'm pretty clear that there is a subset of people with psychiatric illness, particularly I worry about people with psychotic illnesses, uh, be it either uh, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder that has a psychotic component, very believable, that we can make some of those people sicker. Mm. And we're even seeing that with THC, in which we're seeing increasingly that folks with these psychotic illnesses are much more likely to be made worse by the use of THC when they're basically obtaining this recreationally. So I do think we need to be very thoughtful as we move. We do need to figure out what we want for certification. I'm part of a a group of folks that's looking for how do we certify this new field, which Mm. we're calling interventional psychiatry. And it's a, a real interesting group of folks because these are folks who tend to be doing Uh, both neurostimulation uh, interventions like electroconvulsive therapy or transcranial magnetic stimulation. I'm also very involved with an implantable device called a vagus nerve stimulator, Mm. as well as ketamine and esketamine, as well as what will be psychedelics, as well as MDMA. So your point is saying that this is, the answers are not necessarily there yet, but the work is well underway to at least hammer down some more concrete specifics of what certification could look like for, again, implementation of not just psychedelics, but other forms of treatment. And what just so that I put out on the table, my uh, barrier at this point for people to be therapists within my program is I want them to be at least three years post-degree, and I want them to have experience with a either a trauma population or with an emergency room population, because I think that level of experience is important, if not critical, to the use of uh, psychedelics. One of the things that I've seen is even in non-PTSD-based studies, is when you dose somebody with psilocybin, you may stir up some unpleasant memories that can be pretty challenging for folks. In one of my studies, we dose somebody who is a service veteran, and this is a guy that served in combat positions, and he had a very challenging dosing session in which he was confronting a lot of recall of a lot of traumatic events from his life and found the experience incredibly difficult. He felt supported during that journey. And I'm happy to say that 
it looks like he's having a really positive response, but the actual dosing session was very hard on him. I would imagine there's still just a larger misconception of psilocybin or psychedelic is taken. You know, the sort of colloquial description is like your ego is shed, you have this out of body experience, and you're off to the races. And I think you have this very good insight into, well, the drug itself has that potential, but you only hit that potential, you reach that ceiling through a very structured and guided session during administration. And during the uh, actual dosing session, my experience with psilocybin is we're just providing support. The real action is prior to dosing when we prepare somebody for the dosing and then after the dosing when we try to help somebody integrate what got stirred up by the dosing. As interesting and as exciting as the developments have been to date, arguably the more fascinating developments are still to come. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.